Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 217th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Joseph Diebenbrock. I'm Matt Enloe. And I'm Warren Kaplan. And today we have Lawson Deming. He is a VFX supervisor, artist. He owns the company Barnstorm VFX that was nominated for two Emmys for doing all the visual effects for Man in the High Castle. They also did the incredible opening title sequence for The Good Fight. They've worked on Silicon Valley. They're working on Grey's Anatomy right now, and they do a lot of awesome visual effects. And Lawson went to school with Matt and has worked with me for many years. And so it was really fun to talk to him about not only the VFX industry, but also about common mistakes that people make. For instance, what's the proper way to shoot a phone screen? What's the proper way to shoot a car on green screen? And I think if you have ever thought of doing any VFX in your work, or if you're interested in VFX specifically, and this is a must-listen-to episode, I honestly think that just how to shoot a phone so that the screen can be replaced on its own is worth its weight in however much we're charging for people to listen to this podcast. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, yeah. I, to me, I think Lawson is... Uh, the perfect example of a artist and craftsperson who understands the processes and the artistry behind what he's attempting to do so well that it elevates his game so clearly. Yeah, he's one of the smartest, most technical filmmakers I've ever met. And his work and success in the field is pretty obviously earned. Yeah. Before we talk to Lawson, I just want to remind people real quick that we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash justshootitpod. It's a place where you can go and throw a couple bucks to us. If you feel like you're getting something out of this podcast, perhaps you made your first feature film and you used a lot of ideas that you heard on this podcast and now you are getting a studio film and you have become a billionaire. Or maybe that's just in your future and you are listening to this to get ready for that next big project. Um, you know, the Patreon is just a simple way for you to support the show. There's a lot of hidden costs, just like in VFX, there's a lot of hidden costs to making this show and uh, we're happy to do it. We're always going to keep the show for free because we want the message and the ideas that we're teaching to people to be available to literally anyone who can download a podcast. 
Um, but also, you know, it, that doesn't mean that it's free for us to make. Yeah. So a little help goes a long way. And if you join at the $10 level, even if it's just for one month, we will mail you a Just Shoot It hat. And finally, some stickers, because we've got some more stickers. And you can wear it, and you will look very cool, because everyone that wears a podcast hat is cool. That's what I learned in nerd school. That, that is something that's cool. Also, we have Just Shoot It t-shirts. How would you find them? If you go to our website, we have Public print-on-demand t-shirts available. Uh, and if you are a patron, we are going to get you a discount code to save a couple bucks on a t-shirt in case you want to buy one. Wearing a matching hat and shirt is pretty much the coolest thing you can do. I learned that at Dork School. And go to our website. Okay, we are here with Lawson Deming, the co-founder slash co-owner slash VFX genius at Barnstorm VFX. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Lawson and I were on the same same dormitory, yeah. Like freshman year. Were you in the production program? Yeah, so I was production. I did all that silly stuff that we do in production, you know, going after equipment for student films that you couldn't get because a grad student had lost it or broken it. But isn't most of what you learn in production at USC just how to tell people that they're doing it the wrong way and how you should be doing it? Yeah, they also, there's a really good course on asking your parents for money, which I should have taken. I wish I had. I also have known Lawson for a really long time. When I met you, I'm pretty sure you were in the lighting department, maybe gaffing, actually on a music video that Mickey Finnegan directed. We just had him on the podcast very Mm. recently. Uh, for Keek the Sneak from Matt's home area, sure. Northern California. Represent. I remember those Keek the Sneak videos. Yeah. And I believe we got into an argument about whether a cropped <laughs> sensor affected the depth of field. <laughs> and oh I believed that it, I don't even remember which side I was on, <laughs> but I do believe I was on the correct side. <laughs> I feel like I know... Orin, how who you were as a young man better now. Like, <laughs> yeah, there is this idea that the longer lens you use, the shallower the depth of field is. And so we talked about cropped sensors because on a cropped sensor, the lens is effectively longer, right? A 50 millimeter mm-hmm. lens is now a 75 or 85, depending on the crop factor. Yes, it's all relative. But I, I could probably do like a four hour podcast just talking about the experiences that I've dealt with sensors in the past month. Oh, wow. Oh, interesting. There are so many shows. I I mean, again, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but like it really is a nightmare now, actually, because it used to be for a period of time, you could at least reliably know what the size of a film back was. Oh, interesting. Right. Which is important. It's important to understand what the focal length of a lens is, because the focal length is relative to the sensor size Mm -hmm. in terms of what actual field of view you're seeing. You know, the amount of degrees of left to right field of view you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And there are so many different sensor sizes and there's so many different crops on those sensors now. So it's like, are you using an open gate? Are you using a crop? Are you you 8K? Are you 6K? Are you 4K? 3K? Is there a blow up? That does sound like a nightmare. And, And all of it basically boils down to because you don't know and because there's no standard for what people are shooting now. There's no standard. It makes it harder for you to reliably trick the eye basically right 
Yeah, essentially, you'd make your CG stuff, you have to shoot it essentially on the same lens mm -hmm. that production shot on, or else the perspective will be wrong. If you make your CG on a wide-angle lens, but they shot on a telephoto lens, it looks completely wrong, and vice versa. Yeah, so all of this introduction of Lawson was done to illustrate how technical and specific and precise you are. And if I remember history correct, because you were so wrong about that argument I had with you, <laughs> you decided to quit the path that you were on of being a successful DP and took a hard right turn into figuring out lenses and sensors and how they relate to each other, so much so that you started a visual effects company to make yourself feel better about losing that argument. That's exactly the reason why it happened, yeah. I never, I never <laughs> forgot it. In fact, I, I never forgot it so bad that I blocked it out of my memory. Sure. Well, and, and just to finish painting the picture, Lawson, not only are you the founder of the studio Barnstorm FX, which has been nominated for many Emmys and I'm sure will win one very, very soon, and you've done a ton of different television shows that we all know and love, but also, I think interestingly, you're still a card-carrying union member. Uh, you're a DP so that you can go shoot your own plates, shoot your right. own elements, and shoot you know pieces for title sequences above board, basically, and make those VFX even stronger than trying to cobble things together based yes. off of the elements that people are just handing over to you. Is that true? That you have to be a union member to shoot, let's say, some smoke on a black background that uh, you want to com composite into a shot? Yes and no. If, for example, I'm shooting something in a capacity of a plate element for something that we, Burnstorm Visual Effects, is producing. Like, let's say a client has done some visual effects work and they need, like you say, they need some smoke. And so Barnstorm Visual Effects, you know, gets the equipment and they hire a special effects person with a smoke machine or whatever we need to do to produce smoke. And we rent the equipment, we shoot it. Uh, I don't need to be in the union to do that. However, let's say we're on set and we're shooting a scene with a bunch of smoke and explosions and other things like that in it. And at the end of the main portion of the scene, they break off a second unit and the main unit goes on to film another scene. And the second unit using the production lighting and the production crew and the production props and all that stuff needs to shoot something in order for me to DP that I need to be in the union because it's mm -hmm. a union show. And in some cases, I actually, while I was working on a show, Strange Angel, which was a period show set in L.A. in the 1930s uh, that's sort of really right up my alley in terms of the types of visual effects and things we were doing. I actually joined the DGA to be able to direct second unit stuff for visual effects for them as well. Wow. And did they just let you join? Uh, they had to petition to get me in specifically for the types of things we were doing because it, it was the type of thing that like needed a visual effects supervisor to direct it. It wasn't like stuff with actors primarily. It was like very specific things. Can you give us an example? Yeah. So we did a sequence where we had at the beginning of season two of the show, it opens with Pearl Harbor, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sequence with a pilot diving in on the USS California, uh, a dive bomber, and we shot some stuff inside an actual airplane cockpit that was shaking around and had a green screen behind it and stuff like that. And there were also these angles and plates and other things that needed to happen. It was a very packed production schedule. 
And it was just a small element of the shoot. So I directed it essentially as a second unit director. And it's just, you know, it's only on screen for a few moments. But it's the type of thing that logistically required a huge amount of effort and required things like I needed to pick a very particular camera angle because I knew how the animatic was, mm-hmm. how we needed to shoot it to match. It was a situation where we kind of had to shoot the live action portion of it to match the CG rather than matching the CG to the live action because of the nature of it. And so it would have been a huge amount of time out of the production schedule for something that just wasn't worth it for them to do, mm-hmm. but that also somebody needed to do it with a certain degree of Uh, detail and precision or else it wouldn't have worked at all in a certain sense you joined the dga to save yourself a ton of grief and work yeah exactly (laughs) but that is an interesting way in now that you are a member do you think that that might open doors for you to direct a very vfx heavy episode of tv or a sequence or second unit direct on some bigger movies it's not my primary goal to direct necessarily. I mean, it's something that a lot of people to to some extent or another have an interest in. And I've always known that I'm not really good at interacting with actors. And uh, my wife, who is an actor, can attest to that because (laughs) I have worked with her on some projects that she does where she acts in them and produces and writes them and I direct and shoot them. And I'm, I'm like not an actor's director. It's not my primary interest. I think if I ever did direct, like direct, direct something, it would probably be like a music video or a commercial that was Mm -hmm. like very specifically visually designed, you know, as opposed to something that was not really to my Mm -hmm. strengths. Right. But aesthetically, composition-wise, color-wise, framing-wise, all that stuff you do enjoy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I wanted to discuss a bunch of different things with you. Again, knowing that we have a filmmaker audience, I -hmm. thought there are a lot of things that people do not realize are done in visual effects. And one of the first times that I came to your office many years ago, you were working on some procedural cop show making some of the actors look better. Yeah, so like removing wig lines, right? Like bringing down shine and gloss. Tell us a little right. bit more about what are the kind of the standard things you guys are brought mm-hmm. into. Right, for- because today there's almost no shows that don't have VFX on them. And right. a lot of them, like the ones where you're doing beauty work on the actors, literally have dozens or hundreds of VFX shots on a show that seems like there are no VFX in, in it. Right. So, so yeah, so beauty work is sort of uh, an open secret in the industry And without going into detail about specific projects, like beauty work is not really a scary thing. And it's not something that is about vanity or Hollywood elitism or any of that. Most of the time, the reason why any beauty work exists is the same reason why makeup and hair people exist on movies and TV shows, which is, you know, in a scene between two characters that is 30 seconds on screen, they may have spent all day filming that, Mm -hmm. you know, and people took a break and went to lunch and went back to their trailer while the scene was being set up. And the air conditioner might be off, so it's incredibly hot. 
yeah, the thing that should look like it happened over a few seconds has to maintain this continuity over hours or even days sometimes because they'll go back and reshoot portions of a scene on a different day. And so you end up in these situations where like, let's say somebody had a breakout or something on a day of filming, but it comes right up against another scene like where a they, skin where they didn't. You mean? Yeah, like a, yeah, like a, a zit or something like that. Now, the reason why they didn't in the previous scene was because the previous scene was shot five days earlier. Mm-hmm. But they play back to back in the show, so it's about things like continuity. Uh, shows now shoot very, very quickly. You know the pace at which they shoot because of digital cameras and need for less large lights means that sort of the whole production tends to go faster. And so, you know, they don't want to sit there and wait around and have 100 people getting paid if someone's wig, let's say, starts to come undone, particularly on things like period shows, like where everybody has long hair or something like that and people are wearing wigs. We're shooting now on these cameras that are incredibly high definition, Mm -hmm. 2K, 4K, 8K, and trying to shoot more quickly. And you can kind of see everything. And things like wig lines, you tend to see around someone's temples the sort of uh, a mesh of a wig that is glued down, but it can come up over time or it's just visible. There's the majority of beauty work is things like that or continuity things or, you know, on shows that have a lot of sexy times in them. You know, oftentimes the actors are wearing some sort of modesty garments that cover their nether regions and they block what they need to block on set, but they also may, you know, cover up a a decent part of their body when they move around. Mm -hmm. And then you have something, they're supposed to look like they're naked, but they have something there and you have to remove that, for example. That's how I got into visual effects is basically just removing clothes from actors (laughs) in After Effects. That's how I met my wife. Are you seriously? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> but is it true that on Game of Thrones, more than half their VFX budget went to water bottle removal? I cannot comment on that. So I was wondering if I could bring up some really common VFX shots that almost every filmmaker has done on set before, and you can mm-hmm. give us a couple notes on what not to do and what to do. Is that cool? Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll start with the most common shot by far. Someone is holding a phone and they want to add what's on the phone in post. Right. What's the best way to shoot that phone and what should you not do even though people think you should do? So this is what we call a burn-in shot. Any type of screen that requires something composited onto it. The number one thing that you should not do is put a bunch of giant thick pieces of tape (laughs) on the screen. It's a terrible idea. Too many people do that. Sure. sure. So, uh, what about just the corners? No, don't touch the screen. Essentially, phone screens are reflective. And so, when you put something that is a matte surface on the screen, a piece of tape, it's actually blocking those reflections. And we have the ability when we are compositing a screen onto a surface like a phone. We have the ability to retain those reflections if they're there, and that's part of what makes it feel realistic because it's getting the lighting from the scene. But if there's something on the screen that's making it dull or that's breaking up those reflections, we don't have those. 
And so we have to rebuild them. It's very complicated. It ends up costing a lot more and taking a lot longer. And you're spending a lot of creative effort, you know, just to kind of fix something that was done on set. So why does everyone put tape on the screen? <laughs> Is that the, something some art department person thought of and then everyone doesn't? That is a bigger question than I think you you realize you're asking. I'm, I'm pretty Lawson sure. just gets the shots, man. He's like, <laughs> yeah. all right, I guess I'll fix it. The reason actually relates to the reason why a lot of people do the things they do with visual effects is because they heard someone at some point say to do something. And generally speaking, as a visual effects supervisor, when you're on set and you're answering questions about how to shoot something, people don't understand at all what you're talking about a lot of the time, unfortunately. <laughs> and so they try and take the meaning that they can from what you've said. And, you know, as humans, we try and find patterns and, and understand things in that way. And so if they remember someone said, oh, you got to physically put marks on this, like they're not thinking about the fact that this is a completely different situation with a completely different thing, with completely different lighting. You know, it would be like if the cinematographer said, we should put a hundred millimeter lens on this because we're shooting an emotional scene. Right. You know, like someone may have overheard a DP say that. And the reason was because in that scene, you know, the DP needed to specifically get close to someone's face because they were crying or for some, you know, purpose to show that they were in their own world or something like that. But it doesn't mean that every time a scene is right. emotional, you have to shoot it on a hundred millimeter lens, right? Like that, that would be crazy. And, it, you know, or if it's like a crowd scene and it's an emotional scene, like what do you do? Get really far away and shoot it on a 100 millimeter lens. Like I think the, the idea of putting tracking marks on a surface is sort of the same thing. It's like somebody heard someone say at one point, hey, we really need tracking marks on this. Let's put some tape on it. And because they didn't understand the context of anything else that was going on, they just assume that that applies to everything. So, so just following that thread, though, specifically with the shot of the phone. Right. Right. The other thing that you you hear all the time is like, oh, can we find a green image to put right. on the phone? Right. Is that helpful? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you got to be more specific than that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the well, trick. With really, the right? brightness turned down, so yes. you're not getting a ton of green spill. Or yeah. what I normally would do is I just actually have them turn the phone off. Right. So the the main reason to have something on the screen is like if you have an iPhone or, a, or an Android phone, where essentially the entire face of the phone is the screen, and the, the screen is black, and the bezel around the screen is also black, and I can't tell as a VFX artist where the screen ends and the phone begins, it makes it really hard to track the screen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we might say, yeah, to open up an image of sort of a dark medium green, make sure it doesn't overexpose or cast a bunch of spill everywhere. And that will be good enough for us to see the corners and we can key it. Mm -hmm. And you like green as opposed to, say, white? Again, I'm going to say it depends. If you want the screen to be the source of light for a scene, particularly like if it's a dark scene, a DP may say, oh, I want to put gray on there. I don't want to put green or I want to put white. The, the trick becomes, you know, is that white going to be a big white glowing white that has to be replaced by like a phone call screen that's like 
10 mm-hmm. percent brightness or something like that and then that white you know because of the way it reacts on camera is going to sort of have a little halo around it it's going to glow mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're shooting with filtration so you know you have a white screen it has a big blurry you know halation around it and then they say oh we want to replace this with the iphone calling screen which is like a dark gray and so you can replace the screen with dark gray but if it was white there's a big glow around it that you can't get rid of. And so that could be a problem. So, you know, I don't want to make it seem more complicated than it is, but there's a reason why, you know, many times you have a visual effects supervisor on set because if you have somebody who knows how the material is going to be dealt with later, they can make a much more objective decision than, again, just saying like, oh, always do this or always do that or never do this or never do that. And, right. and I was joking before, but then it, it is your problem, right? I've certainly been asked to come to set before under situations where you know that they're not going to do what you say. <laughs> and they just want you there so that later on when the visual yeah, sure. effects come in and your producer is like, man, this stuff is going to be much more complicated than we thought it was going to be, and we got to charge you more and for this. And then they're going to say, yeah. then then they're going to say, yeah, the visual effects supervisor was on set, though your guy was on set. Yeah, right. <laughs> I just had to do a bunch of phone screens, and they did have the tape. It was on the corners, oh, no. like literally covering the case. So I had to rebuild the case in every shot. Oh, no it, motion blur nonstop. But what was interesting is they had the phone off, which I liked. But then when they gave me the interface, after I had done all the tracking and everything, because they hadn't decided on it yet, it was a fully white screen. Mm. And there was no light coming out of the phone. So then I had to... Probably look weird. Attempt to cast light, light on the things. edge. Yeah, oh, brighten no. the edges of all the fingers and thumbs. You guys can't tell. Lawson's just disgusted right now. <laughs> I really am. It's, it's a, definitely a, a flashback. I have this idea. I think I could make a lot of money if I sold like a coin that was like a green screen coin and said, look, you flip this coin on set. If it's heads, you do what you thought you wanted to do. If it's tails, you don't. You will get it right more often if it's just random than if you try and decide what to do. Oren, you're right. This is such a common question that people are constantly dealing with. And I think like especially low budget, oftentimes you you know realize like, oh, shoot, we should have a VFX supervisor. But here we are. And uh, I need somebody to text someone something. I've seen, mm-hmm. have you seen those programs, like you can get like an app or whatever that will throw like a track, like you turn it on and it's green screen or white, but as soon as you see any contact point, it throws four tracking markers around the point. So like if I wanted to see someone scrolling or something like that, is that helpful for you at all? Austin, it doesn't sound it? helpful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess what I'm really asking is what do you do when you need to somewhat watch someone scroll or yeah interact with the phone in some way right because that's really where things get it's tricky right yes so you've got a couple of different options one of them is if you're really really well prepared you can make your phone animations first Mm -hmm. and you can just play them back on the phone you know we Mm -hmm. have in the film industry, we have playback people that can put practical things on TVs or on phones. I've known people who have like a program. It looks like you're texting, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't matter where on the screen you touch. It just puts the correct next letter. 
and they so, could just kind of like so yeah, a person their could thumbs. just sort of like, yeah, like touch walking and, through a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, and rather than like you know like if you had to perform on camera and type on your phone, you'd like have a bunch of misspellings and stuff. But mm-hmm. it essentially prevents that from happening. So you could do something essentially something along those lines where if you need someone to be able to scroll on something, you could record your visual effects or record a real phone screen mm-hmm. and then just play it back or have it on the phone. What's the budget version, Lawson? That is the budget version. You just do it yourself. <laughs> it's the budget version. Yeah, there's no, in that there's, version. I would yeah, say I it's like, so. the, it only goes up from there. It only yeah, becomes yeah. more expensive. This is something that is one of my pet peeves is yeah. that everyone thinks it's cheaper to do screens and post. Yeah. When in reality, you have to make the screen and put them in the phone. But if we make the screen first and put it on the phone and shoot it, then we've eliminated the whole VFX need. Right. right. Yeah. And like somebody's got to do it. Uh, that's really what it comes down like to. Like it's going to happen eventually. Yeah. Right. It's sort of like an out of sight, out of mind thing. It's like you assume, you know, oh, yeah, that you've got a computer. Yeah. Everybody I love does. shooting phones practically anytime I can because... When you are shooting with the phone off, a lot of times the way people are holding the phone and the reflections mm-hmm. that are on the phone, in reality, if the screen was on, you wouldn't even mm-hmm. be able to tell. Yeah. So you have to cheat so much in VFX that it starts looking fake. But if you don't cheat, then you can't read what right. it says yeah. on the screen. We've so. certainly done things, too, where somebody did shoot a phone practically and they didn't like how it looked. Like we worked on a show right. where the, the text bubbles, they decided they weren't big enough. They were just like, right. ah, it's kind of hard to read. And so we went into every shot where people were texting and we rebuilt half of the phone screen. So people were still typing on it, but the part where their hands weren't covering up, we replaced. That's actually better than having to do the whole thing yeah. from scratch, right? Because you're still seeing the, the thumbs interact with the keyboard. And stuff, yeah, exactly. Which is the gnarlier part. That's interesting. That is the much more difficult part, yeah. So related to this question, but I think this would apply to a lot of other VFX shots where you're adding new elements into a shot... I think there is this idea that if the camera is moving, it's more difficult. Do you have thoughts on that versus shooting on a tripod? And I know it depends, but let's talk about a a shot of a phone or a shot of a sign where we want to change some lettering on the sign. Right. It it certainly does depend. But I would say if you're moving the phone and the camera's moving, it's no more complicated than if the camera was stationary because you're still moving. Mm -hmm. There's still relative motion in the frame. That's interesting. If everything's locked off then that is a degree easier. But if yes. anything, if the thing you have to affect is moving, then who cares? Right. Basically. Yeah. And so, and I just want to add for my, my own experience on VFX and screens and those things is even though Lawson and his team are like an A level of compositing, that is like taking new elements and sticking them into a scene. And I'm kind of on the bottom edge of a B minus. My <laughs> general rules are always, Camera motion is good, and obscuring the screen or the things you're adding is also good. Because a lot of times I see people say, let's lock the camera, and let's make sure nothing goes in front of this screen. Let's make sure nothing goes in front of this sign. And to me as a compositor, a lot of times that looks extra fake (laughs) because Mm -hmm. the camera's not moving and nothing is moving in front of that element. So we can't tell that it's mid-ground. You know, there are some other clues like how in focus it is and whatnot right but yeah i think the more things like moving the camera and obscuring the things that you're adding to it you can do the easier it is to sell that the thing that you added is actually in the scene would you say though that say someone were to walk in front of a a sign for instance are you then adding 
potential rotoscoping or, or keying work? You are, but one person walking in front of a sign is not a lot of roto. When you have a crowd of people chanting and you want to add a sign behind them and there's 200 people, that's a ton of roto. Right. Or if you use a green screen, you know, that can help you with that. You'd probably take that one person walking in front of a sign rather than a phone screen wrapped in gaffer tape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's a thing. I think a lot of producers think, oh, that's roto work. We can't do that. We can't afford that. Sure. And a lot of times on my jobs, I'll say, I'll do it. it it's literally a 10 minute roto job. So anyway, well, so when people are moving the camera, do you prefer that they use higher shutter speeds or do things to make the footage sharper or does that not matter? It really depends. You know, like a lot of what we do in visual effects is trying to work around and compensate for the things that happen when one is shooting. You know, so things like motion blur, things like grain that is inherent to the camera or compression that is inherent to the camera. There are circumstances under which you might want to shoot a plate at a higher shutter angle or a sharper shutter angle, I should say. Specifically, if, for example, you were getting, let's say, driving plates and for whatever reason you couldn't shoot on like a stabilized head or something like that. Like let's say you're just using like a suction cup on mm -hmm. the window of your car driving down sort of a potholed street. And when you say car plates, you're talking about if we're shooting a car on green screen, we need to shoot also what we're going to see on that green screen. And those are the driving plates. The driving plates, yeah. You want to match the angle and the focal length and the and the, the framing essentially so that you have plates that you could use. You know, I've certainly done things before where I've gone out and shot my own plates for something just because I, it's like, we just need it for one shot or something like that. And I'm just in my own car and I have a suction cup and a DSLR in the window. And I'm like, this road has got a bunch of potholes in it. It's, it's very bumpy. So like we can stabilize uh, a shot, you know, it's the same as tracking is uh, stabilizing shots. So if something's bumpy and you don't want it to be bumpy, you can remove the camera movement from it. But what you can't remove is the motion blur caused by that camera movement. It's just, it's baked into the frame. Mm -hmm. And so if you are in a situation where you think you're going to have an excessive amount of motion blur and you want to remove it, you can shoot at a sharp shutter angle and then stabilize that and it's fairly clean. And then we can add the motion blur back in after the fact. Right. Okay. And can I bring up one other misconception that I hear a lot on set? And oh, I actually sure. could be wrong. I don't even know what you're going to say about this. Ooh. But I hear a lot of producers, editors, film people say, oh, well, this is a VFX shot. We need to shoot it in 6K or 8K. Let's give them the biggest, biggest file we can get. And me, as a VFX artist, mostly working on an iMac, uh, I always much prefer the 2K version because I can just work on it much faster, especially mm -hmm. if there's any 3D elements or anything. And when people are giving me super high-res files thinking that they're helping me, it's actually hurting me. It's just clogging your system. Yeah. I, yes. I think what it really comes down to is ask your visual effects artist or visual effects supervisor, if you don't have a visual effects supervisor, ask a visual effects artist, preferably the one who's going to be working on your show, what they want. Never assume that you know what's going to be best. You know, high resolution is a double-edged sword. It can be helpful, especially in a situation that might require some complex 
tracking or stabilization or additional, actually the opposite of stabilization, adding things like bumpiness to a, a shot, if the visual effects are going to do that. Yeah, like for instance, that plate shot you were just talking about, it's kind of nice to have a little extra res- resolution because that stabilization is going to offen- essentially crop that image, right? Right. So Yeah. So in the instance of that shot, first of all, yes, the stabilization is going to crop that image. And the second part of it is, you know, let's say I have a scene in a car and I'm shooting, you know, profile into the passenger seat for a driving scene, you know, and one of the shots is on like a 40 millimeter lens that has the driver and the passenger in it. It's kind of an over. And the other shot is like a 70 millimeter lens. It's sort of like a medium close up on the passenger. And then the other shot is like a hundred millimeter lens. It's a close up on the passenger. So what should I shoot my plates at? Right? So generally speaking with driving plates, you want to shoot your driving plates slightly wider than the you don't widest shoot lens. Them three times, Lawson? No, you don't. You can <laughs> you can do much better than that. You shoot them on like essentially one step wider than the widest lens that you would be using in the scene. So let's say you shot your driving plates on like a 25 millimeter lens, and then you use those driving plates. And you know, the difference between two focal lengths is essentially the difference between just a blow-up. So like if you shot something on a 25 millimeter lens and you wanted it to look like it was shot on a 50 millimeter lens, you just blow it up 200%. So you do the math. It's also based on film back size, but you do the math, which could be very complicated or very simple, depending on whether you shot on the same camera or a different camera. And you say, okay, so this first shot on the 40 millimeter lens, that's like a 1.7x blow up on that thing that I shot on a 25 millimeter lens for the plate. And then for this 70 millimeter lens, you do an enlargement. And then for the 100 millimeter lens, you do an enlargement. If you just shot your back plates on a fairly low resolution and you're blowing them up like 200 or 400%, yeah, they're gonna be out of focus because they're outside the window of a car, but they they may not hold up. So if you shot those plates at like 4K on a show that was finishing in HD, maybe that's a good thing. The flip side of that is, yeah, if, if your show is just shooting, you know, super, super high resolution and then, you know, delivering you image sequences that are a terabyte in size or something ridiculous like that, it's going to take your visual effects guys way, way, way longer to work with them if they're working with these super high resolution images than if they were working with something closer to normal. Right. And by the way, Barnstorm VFX, your first reel way before Man in the High Castle, the car stuff was so incredibly realistic that I was just showing it to everyone. And I did this movie where there's a lot of car stuff and I wanted to do a couple days on green screen. And everyone said, no, green screen car stuff looks so horrible. And I would always show them the Barnstorm VFX reel. And you told me some really interesting things about shooting cars, which... I think, again, a common misconception is you put some actors in the car, you put the green screen behind them, you light the green screen. Of course, you need to minimize bounce because the cars have a lot of reflective parts on them. And it's very easy for parts of the car to disappear (laughs) when you're keying them. Uh, But my instinct, and I think a lot of people's instinct, is have a couple grips or PAs bouncing the car to make it, to add some movement. No, yeah. I think... Sorry, you know, Matt, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, I think, Orin, you're, you're bringing up the exact that the no shade 
meant but like the andrew kramer sort of like diy like let's make something happen in our garage sort of mentality right so like what is the right way to approach something like that right but even i guess i think a lot of our listeners are making that five thousand yeah. dollars short or that yeah. fifty thousand dollar feature and want I've their done car that a green screen car shots to look good right yeah what's the plate and maybe they're even buying or borrowing or finding back plates because they mm-hmm. can't shoot their own yeah, what are the misconceptions between the ways that we've learned it through kind of DIY YouTube tutorials effectively and what kind of elevates the game, right? Because even when you were describing the plates, right, Lawson, you were like, okay, well, if you do the math X, Y, and Z, I've done those plates myself and just eyeballed it. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you're just like, okay, well, I saw the difference between the shots, so I'll just kind of play with the slider until it looks okay, right? Right. Well, first of all, I'm not going to shade Andrew Kramer. Sure. Nothing but love. <laughs> I have certainly learned things from Video Copilot. It's a good place to go if you're if you're just messing around in After Effects and you want to learn something. So definitely no shade to Andrew Kramer. I have like a, a giant to-do list for things that are shot in cars. But if I could break it down just to the basics, first it would be shoot plates from the right angles mm-hmm. for the inside of the car. And one of the interesting angles that you taught me about that didn't even occur to me is you need to do one angle that's on the front hood, just straight up into the sky. Right. And that is the reflections that you're going to put back on the windshield as you're driving, which is one of the things that I feel like Barnstorm was one of the first companies that did that so much. And it's one of the biggest parts that is selling you know, seeing the reflections of trees as you're driving in the suburbs. Right. Or freeway signs or lights or whatever. Yeah, you know, shoot the right plates is going to include things like if you are shooting a head-on shot, you know, like a hood mount through type of shot through the windshield, having a reflection plate for the sky. It involves, you know, if you can and you're shooting an exterior driving scene and you're shooting it on a green screen, just shoot it outside during the day. Use the benefit of the sun and the sky, the sky is a massive softbox that is going to reflect off of the, the surface of the car. Don't go into your garage at night and throw some fluorescent lights over it that like, yeah, it's lighting the actors, but the outside of the car is just like a black hole. Just if it takes place during the day, shoot it during the day. If it takes place at night, then yeah, consider shooting it at night and having moving lights pass by and things like that. I'm going to throw a a true backyard question at you, Lawson. Yeah. If you had to choose between, say, shooting in a garage with a green screen set up or something like that versus just throwing your car in the backyard without a green screen and just, like, rotoing the windows? No. No. (laughs) Don't do that. That's where roto does get expensive. (laughs) Especially with weaving hair and stuff. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. especially when you're talking about hair... And when you're talking about things like, you know, realistically, the windows on your car are kind of dirty. They should mm-hmm. be. A lot of the time shows will be like, we got to spit shine that window. And I'm like, no, look, it's got great. It's got water spots on it. Those things can key. As long as your green screen is nice and even, you know, it can key. If your green screen is terrible and has a bunch of wrinkles in it, sure, then it won't. Because you got to crank up the the key in order to get rid of those details in the green screen, and they're going to blow away details in other places too. But yeah, let that stuff happen. 
Another thing that I say with driving scenes is shoot it the way that you would if you were shooting it practically. And this applies to a lot of visual effects. And that was a thing that I was going to bring up earlier, Orin, when you were talking about people who like all of a sudden will lock off a shot for no reason than because it's a visual effects shot. I think a lot of people like lose their minds when something becomes a visual effects shot and they don't know how to shoot it anymore because they treat it like it's some weird thing that they have to shoot in a particular way and they don't just shoot it like they're making a movie. Now that's an excellent note. Like if you're shooting a phone, pretend it's on. If you're shooting a monster running towards you, then stand there and run backwards if that's what you would do if there was a monster there. And if you're shooting a car, like don't get like 40 feet away from a car on a thousand millimeter lens like because how would <laughs> you shoot it's that flying through the air like if you were if you were actually driving with a car if you were just shooting like a process trailer with a car you can't really be more than a few feet away from the car so those lenses are going to physically be in a certain place if you want it to feel like a real shot shoot it the way you shoot a real shot right and you're dealing in the world of subliminal signals right like that right people oftentimes can't really put their finger on why something feels fake but I think there's something really tangible about thinking through like, oh, if I were shooting this shot and the car was actually moving, I'd be hit by oncoming traffic if we were this far out. You know, right. like there's something subliminal of like, I understand distance and perspective enough to know that this feels magical in a way that's dumb. I will say you can get any car shot with a drone. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I agree with you on that, actually, in general. I know you work on kind of high budget stuff. I don't know if you guys do some small jobs every once in a while in between. But I'm curious how many stitches you've done over the past three years of drone shots to Steadicam shots. Because I own a very cheap drone, the Phantom 4. And I can't tell you how many times friends have said to me, oh, I, can you just come do this one shot? It's just this person, they're walking somewhere, and then the camera flies away. And they don't realize how difficult that actually is to pull off with the drone, especially an inexpensive <laughs> drone like mine. It's easy for them when they don't know how it's done. Because if <laughs> yeah, they it, send it to they, Lawson and then they get it back yeah, and it well, looks great. Because, like, because if everything is magic, like if they don't, if, if to them like a point track is magic... They don't know the difference and difficulty between that and like the most difficult thing you could possibly do. Right. So they assume that they're all the same essentially. And that's, that's part of the, the issue. I've never, I have, we've done some gnarly sort of connected shots before, but what you're describing, this idea of like taking one shot and connecting it to a completely different shot, almost impossible to do. Right. Okay. Good to... I'm going to use that sound bite for when people ask me to do that. I wanted to ask, you also have created some stunning title sequences, like you did the slow motion title sequence for The Good Fight, mm -hmm. which I've seen. Titles is another thing that in low budget filmmaking and indie filmmaking tends to be an afterthought. And people, I, I've worked as a VFX artist on kind of these low budget, under a million dollar horror films and things. People are asking me to create entire title sequences on a budget, uh, two days worth of VFX type of budget. And I try to explain to them, you know, there's designing the look, trying to figure out what the story is. Can you tell us about some of the elements that you think are important to make a good title sequence? That is a big question. And I will add that I have done my, f I want to say my first title sequence was for Cabin Fever 2. 
Oh. Which is a relatively cool. Eli, lo- is that Eli Roth low no? budget. I mean, it was produced by him, but I don't think he directed it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you can go check that out. An animated, cell animated look title sequence that I did in like, I think two weeks of just like locking myself in my apartment and and beating my head against the wall. This is the opening titles? The opening titles, yeah. Oh, wow. For Cabin Fever 2. Cabin Fever 2. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I've only gone somewhere from there. It was incredibly fun to work on. And I think the thing with title sequences is they are, they're both incredibly exhilarating because to a certain extent, you can really be as creatively out there as you want to be. But they're all they're also can be incredibly uh, complicated and frustrating because at least for me, the way that I do them, oftentimes I'm doing kind of everything on them <laughs> because title sequences don't often have a, a lot of money in them relative to, to other parts of a project because they are kind of gravy on top. Some shows budget for it, but very few shows budget for title sequences, but at a certain point they want them. And so they are kind of a labor of love. And because I love designing stuff, oftentimes I, I take it upon myself to say, yeah, I'll do it, but we can't afford to pay anyone else on my team to do it. So I guess I'm just going to take this on mm-hmm. and immerse myself in it. You know, the, the things that make a good title sequence, I think, are if the title sequence gets across the idea of the show in a minute or however long it is. Like tonally, thematically? Tonally, thematically, it gets you ready to watch the show. Mm -hmm. And title sequences have advanced so much from being just, you know, all the characters sort of turning around to camera and smiling (laughs) to there not being any title sequences, really, to Mm -hmm. them coming back as these sort of works of, like, abstract art, essentially, that are meant to just sort of... Sometimes they're not even related to the show. I mean, I can use the Good Fight title sequence as an example. Like, it has no imagery of the characters from the show or the locations from the show. It's just meant to get across the idea of the show through this sort of crazy aesthetic conceit of all these beautiful objects exploding in slow motion. Which you (laughs) shot practically, right? Yeah, we shot it practically. And how did you blow them up? With explosives. Really? Uh, Yes. Dynamite? No, smaller than that. So, you know, so we had this idea essentially, and I worked together with the showrunner to to come up with the idea. And the, you know, the show starts out with a character, the main character kind of having her world rocked. Uh, Without going into too much detail, it's sort of like a, you know, fall from grace. And there's a lot of sort of similar things that happen to other characters in the show. And we wanted this idea of sort of taking these beautiful things, things that represent uh, achievement and luxury and capitalism and success and just be like, they're gone. They're destroyed. Blow them up. And so we sort of- And that was your idea, Barnstorm. It wasn't something that they came, the producers from the show came with. I had an idea of objects that were- made out of porcelain, like falling mm-hmm. to the ground and smashing. And the uh, showrunner, uh, Robert King, said, oh, I like that, but why don't we have them blowing up instead and make them real objects? See, <laughs> I had this said, idea. Okay. Yeah, and I said, ooh, because <laughs> I had this idea that we were going to do some sort of dynamics CG thing and we weren't going to need to shoot anything. 
And once he's like real things and blowing up, I was like, Ooh, that's, we got to shoot that now. That's going to be, and we have like four weeks to do this. So we, can I ask actually a producery question? Yeah. What would have been cheaper blowing up the practical thing or the CG dynamics? Good question. I think as it was put together eventually, I think it actually probably would have been maybe cheaper to do the dynamics. I'm mm-hmm. not certain at this point. Kind of a toss-up, it sounds like. Yeah, though. it's a toss-up. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, and and so we did a test for it, and we shot on a Phantom camera, the, the Phantom cinema camera, which we were able to get to shoot at around 5,000 frames sure. per second. 5,000 is fast, man. It's not fast enough, though. Because we shot the test at 5,000 frames per second, and and he saw it and said, hmm, I like it, but, but I slower. really wish it was like five times slower. Yeah. The producer said, Robert yeah, King said. Yeah. And I said, ooh, I don't know if that's possible, but we'll find out. And so what we ended up doing is we we found a, not the cinema phantom camera, but one of the scientific ones, one of the ones that they use to like do science experiments and Mm-hmm. show the speed of bullets and stuff like that was able to, if we, if we made a certain trade off on the resolution mm-hmm. and shot at like 1280 by 800, which is less than HD resolution. It's, you know, it's like barely right. more than standard definition. We were able to get it up to 25,000 frames per second. Oh, five times. Exactly. Yeah. God. And so we shot at 25,000 frames per second and our lighting was six, 20 Ks. Yeah, you're going to get a sunburn. <laughs> two, two 10 Ks set, and, and, and in two 5 Ks. We had to pull power from an adjacent stage. Like that's how much <laughs> power it used. Some of the props were melting while we yeah. were filming it. Like the computer. From the lights. Like, yeah, the lights. Yeah. And they had to wait to like put the explosives on until like right when we were ready to go because they didn't want them to cook off and explode prematurely. And then, you know, when we shot it, each each shot, the camera would roll for three seconds and it recorded like an hour of footage in three seconds. <laughs> and then and then we had this thing that was shot at a fairly low resolution on a sensor that was not, the short version is it, the sensor was not designed to mm-hmm. produce a beautiful image. It's not a cinema grade. So, sensor. yeah. So it had all these like weird flares and noise and mm-hmm. stuff on it. We had to do a bunch of beauty work t- right. to every yeah. shot. We wanted to give it that look of where it starts out feeling like a sort of, you know, sexy, enviable object as Mm -hmm. as if it was a commercial or something like that for the for the object in question before it blows up. Right. I love the gavel. You must have drilled the hole in the gavel and put to put the explosive. Yeah, we drilled a hole in the gavel. We for the second season of the show, we have one of those Newton's cradle things, which is the little balls that bounce back and forth. Mm-hmm. Right. So like those are made out of solid steel. So we couldn't actually blow them up. So we had a company 3D print resin mm-hmm. Newton's cradle balls and then dip them in like chrome paint, like uh, automotive grade chrome paint so that they would look like they were, you know, chromed and then blew those up. How yeah. did you do the wine bottle? Uh, did you, was the explosive in, in it or behind, right uh, behind it? I believe the explosive was right behind it for the okay. wine bottle. It really right. didn't take much to, the other thing that, that Robert wanted in general was he wanted, he didn't want the explosion to like take over the shot. Mm-hmm. He didn't want a bunch of smoke and fire and 
and and stuff like that. Yeah, you want to see you the see object. All the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You want to see all the yeah. pieces. And so we had to be very careful. And our and our special effects guy kept on being like, what? Like he's used to like blowing stuff up at real speeds and just blowing the shit out of stuff, right? <laughs> right, right. So right. like yeah, we were like, no, 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 no. Putting you like gasoline, like he's building fireballs yeah. into something. <laughs> yeah, and so at a certain yeah. point, he's like, I can't use charges that are any smaller than the ones that I'm using because like, I just don't have them. And it was like, they just need to be like, just, 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 just big enough to like crack it so that it, it will explode on its own. Like not bigger than that because we don't want to see a bunch of fire and stuff like that. In some cases you see a little bit of fire and a little bit of smoke, but like we like painting smoke and stuff out of the shots. How many desks and TVs did you blow up? We blew up three of everything. Yeah. So there was three TVs and the desks, I think we had three of them, maybe two of them. We built those desks based on actual props that the show had out of balsa wood. So oh, they were gotcha. they were physically so they would... built at yeah, like a full scale to match real objects. So cool. good, man. So and cool. And did you because the objects are different sizes, like a phone compared to a desk, for instance, mm-hmm. did you shoot them all on the same lens or different lenses? We shot them at different lenses, different distances. There were also, you know, issues with like, so if you're really close on an object, like a phone, you know, if a piece of that phone moves like one foot, like, and the frame is on that phone, that one foot of distance is completely out of frame, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Whereas with a desk, if you're, you know, 20 feet away from it and a piece of that desk moves one foot, it's like 10% of the frame. Right. And so one explosion radius has a lot to do with your framing. Exactly. Because you're, because you, again, your lens is a, is an, is a field of view. It's an angle, like, you know, 20 degrees or 10 degrees or 30 degrees or however, why, like you're seeing an angle of view. And we were shooting on this, again, on this camera that was barely, barely, barely good enough for right. HD. Super low resolution. Mm-hmm. Super so low resolution. frame it with a lot of extra head. Exactly. So we were like, how wide? How wide do we frame it? Do we frame it wider mm-hmm. in case the ex- it explodes? Right, to catch all of the debris. Direction. Yeah, yeah. Like, we didn't know what. And because we were doing three of everything and none of us had ever done this before. And really, like, it's completely unpredictable. Like, what? how do you know what's going to happen? Yeah. Even like, after you test it, you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. It's not going to be consistent from gavel to gavel. We would do it and we'd be like, hmm, maybe we should widen out like a few degrees on this or reframe mm-hmm. it a little bit like that. Because again, like we didn't want to, we didn't want to widen out too much, but we didn't want to blow up too much either. So in a lot of cases too, we would be tighter than we would normally be and we would be centered on something. And then we would, in post, we would shift we'd it to one side it, right? of the frame. Yeah. And then even as it was exploding, the, the bits would never get far enough away that they would like fall out of the frame. Mm-hmm. Right. For our listeners, I've endorsed this website before, but it was many years ago. And it's if you are at all interested in title design, especially opening titles, there's this website, Art of the Title, mm-hmm. which just has breakdowns and keyframes from all the best title sequences in the world. Except is, for my title sequences. I don't <laughs> think they're on there. I know you are definitely not a person that needs any advice from me, but if I were you, and it's probably something you're already doing. I would work on my crowd VFX reel right now <laughs> oh, man. and start sending yeah. it to every studio because one thing we have heard is a lot of people that had big crowd scenes 
ready to shoot yeah. are no longer going to are anticipating that they won't be able to do that for quite a long time. Yeah. 500 extras, for instance, in one spot. I'm sure you've already thought about this, but I would think that if a VFX house said, hey, by the way, here's how we can do crowd shots and here's how you can rethink your creative for this commercial, for this movie, for this show to shoot it so it's easy to add a crowd and we are the people that will shepherd guide you through that process. We actually are working on two uh, sports projects right now that have a significant amount of digital crowd work mm-hmm. in them. So we're actually, we're making that real right now <laughs> yeah, as we speak. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I might need uh, to hire you to add some friends into my house because my wife and daughter <laughs> are not cutting it anymore. Oh, no. Just kidding. The last question just for our listeners. If we have a listener that is new to film, new to VFX, wants to learn some software, what is one program that you would recommend someone would learn if they're trying to do all their own VFX? And what is one program you would recommend someone to learn if they're trying to get a VFX job at a big house like yours? Is it Houdini, Cinema 4D, Maya? What's the thing Mm -hmm. that you would love to have more people that that what do you want to see on a resume yeah yeah well i'll tell you if if when i was first learning self-teaching myself visual effects and particularly cg i was teaching myself 3d if blender had been around at the time uh, that's a great great option we've actually used it professionally and we still do for some of our modeling and and texturing work it is a 3d program first and foremost but it also has tools for 3d sculpting for editing for compositing and it's a an open source software that is free essentially so blender is a great program particularly if you're interested in 3d CG stuff like you don't need to go out there and buy Maya right out of the gate that you know Maya is sort of the industry standard program but you can learn a lot with Blender and it also has a lot of great tutorials and it's a great community of people who will just tell you how to help you do stuff you can just mm-hmm. post in a message board and that's really the number one thing because a lot of these programs that we use are very complicated and they require a lot of work to figure out but if you have the resources of tutorials or people who are helping you do it it makes it a lot easier to do so yeah, if you're just starting out, I would say look up Blender. You've got nothing to lose. If you want to get hired at a visual effects studio as a compositor, the program that most studios, including Barnstorm, use is Nuke. And that is for all of our green screens, burn-ins, various other compositing tasks up to the most sort of complicated sort of matte painting and CG compositing situations. The the CG is made in other programs, like we use Houdini primarily for that and, and Blender, as I mentioned. But the bulk of it is done in Nuke to a lesser extent After Effects. Cool. Those are really good tips. I yeah, like, I like that Blender tip. I'm Matt and I actually yeah. just talking about it. And I, I was like, oh, I'm going to teach myself Blender in quarantine. I watched one tutorial and it was fun. And then and what I happened? I haven't picked it back up since. I've been, you know, I've been busy. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I believe I was you. trying to watch every film on all the AFI Top 100 film lists. So mm-hmm. co- comedy, 1998 and 2007 list. Oh my God. It's going great. So he's pretty busy. Wow. Well, would you be cool with joining us for an unpaid endorsement? Absolutely. Unpaid endorsement. Cool. Awesome. 
Orin, you want to start or you want me sure. to? Sure. We talked about David F. Sandberg. He directed Shazam. He's doing Shazam 2. He did Annabelle Creations. He has this amazing series on Vimeo of tutorials. You must check out his Vimeo channel, David F. Sandberg. He made a short film, just him and his wife, by themselves, using lights. He bought at Ikea and a black magic camera, shot in their apartment, called Lights Out, and he got a studio movie deal off of that, and then he directed Shazam after that, which I, I really enjoyed. But he just made a short in quarantine called Shadowed that is really awesome and really fun, and even more exciting than that is he made a behind-the-scenes video called Good Enough, and it's about his process of doing the VFX and shooting and compositing. And three, he uses Blender, I believe, to do mm. his 3D stuff. But yeah. his, his stuff is awesome. And yeah. he talks about how he just kept working and working and working. And at some point he said, okay, this is good enough. And that's the whole mm. theme of his behind-the-scenes video. And our podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but also in VFX, you know, we've all had that experience where it could be better if we restarted it from scratch and chose a different strategy. But if the client loves it, sometimes you're like, well, okay, that's good enough. I think there's something to be said too for like, you know, particularly because in the, in the visual effects work and the, the, the industry in general, when you're trying to produce stuff, you know, based on a a certain budget, you know, like working in a a larger Mm -hmm. budget territory, and then you're going back and you're making stuff, for yourself where you don't have that time, you don't have that budget, and you just kind of have to say, this is what I'm working with. Mm-hmm. It can be very freeing to, to actually realize that you don't need to tear your hair out over something, sure. that if, if, if that perfectionism is stopping you from completing it, then you got to push past that. Because mm-hmm. the, the greatest thing that you've ever made that you didn't finish, that no one sees, is not worth sure. anything. Yeah. yeah, just shoot it and put it out there. My other endorsement is more pandemic related, and a lot of people probably know about it, but it's Sunbasket. Do you guys know about that? I don't oh, know. It's pretty much Blue Apron, but for some reason it's the trendy one right now. Mm. You order, we have, we're on the three dinner plan, and it's, we have three dinners for two. They, on Monday, we get a big box that has all the ingredients, the meats, the proteins, the fish, whatever, the vegetables, the produce, the spices. They each come in a bag that's labeled for that night. And then you open it up and there's directions on how to cook things. All you need to have is the tools, the pans and all those things. And then olive oil, salt and pepper. And I believe those are the only things you need to supply, but they supply everything else. And we've only had two meals so far, but they've both been really delicious, really filling and surprisingly healthy, really low on carbs, like cauliflower Mm. rice instead of regular rice. Mm. But uh, we're kind of learning how to cook by following these directions. Hmm. Today I made turkey meatballs and I never thought of chopping up cilantro and putting it in the ground turkey and making meatballs out of it, which is, I know turkey, like meatballs 101, but I always just buy meatballs at Trader Joe's that are frozen and I microwave them. But now I realize (laughs) you can do better than that. So Sunbasket, we've been enjoying it. Nice. Nice. Lawson, what you got, buddy? My endorsement. So you guys may or may not know, I am a huge fan of board games. And so is my wife, actually. She mm-hmm. has n- not only is a huge fan of board games, but has sort of become like a board game minor celebrity. 
And sure, she's a board game influencer. She is a board game influencer. She does videos and plays board Wait, games Wait, do you online. guys get free games? Uh, yes, we get lots yeah. of free games. I just counted the other day and we have like 125 board games. <laughs> <laughs> And and we're getting sent like That's so much cardboard, <laughs> and we're getting sent like six more right it's like now. Two weeks of Amazon packages. Yeah. <laughs> so so obviously we cannot play board games in person with other people, but there is a way that you can play board games online called Tabletop Simulator, and so you can get Tabletop Simulator on Steam, and essentially it's not video games. It's not games that play themselves like you still have to know how to play a board game but people will like upload the artwork from board games and some of them are official and you you know literally pick up the dice in this simulator and like shake them and roll them and deal the cards and stuff like that but like you can play board games with other people your friends and family and other people completely digitally without being in the same place and the game that i have become obsessed with recently and i bought a physical copy of it but i'm also playing it on tabletop simulator is called here i stand and it is this super complicated war game about the reformation so imagine like risk except Mm -hmm. you're also like doing religious conversions and if you're playing as the English, like you're King Henry killing your various wives. And if you're the Ottomans, you're like supporting piracy. It's amazing. And I, and I, I played it against myself and it took me 14 hours and it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and did Let you win? Ask I did. But oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I lost, I lost, you know, four times for all the other people that I was playing as and I won once. Right. Can That's I ask awesome. what is your favorite real world board game? Like say like you're having friends what's your favorite party game? Let's say. Like you're you're having a, a bunch of friends over. You know, they're nerdy but maybe not like aficionados. So the game that consistently gets like the most laughs of any of the games that I play is a game called Modern Art. <laughs> it's a game about being like art dealers. It's modern called modern art. art. Yeah, modern art. Yeah, it's awesome. a it's a blast. Awesome. Well, my endorsement is the album "Pure Gold" by Harry Belafonte. We got a record player, you know, a, like a year ago, and I was really anti-vinyl for a long time. <laughs> Because I, it is well, the fact that you have a policy about. I, I was going to say, like, it. that's the funny thing. It's like I'm ambivalent about vinyl. Yeah. No, no, yeah, I, I was just like, you know, I, it's to me, it was like, oh boy, like all these people pretending like they can hear the difference, you know, even though they've got the same shitty pair of speakers and like collector culture and all. There's a lot of stuff to be sure. annoyed by with vinyl, right? But the the thing that I realized was really fun about it is just the intention of deciding to listen to an entire album or just even thinking about what you're going to listen to mm-hmm. and being like, hey, I'm in the mood to put this on has been really, really fun. And, you know, we have like a handful of records and they're all very weird or quirky or very moody. Do you know what I mean? It's not like I'm working out to Harry Belafonte all the time, <laughs> which is exactly my point, actually. It's so fun to just be like, all right, like I'm in a terrible mood. I'm going to put on these like kind of calypso dance 
all tracks for an entire record. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're not skipping tracks. Or, I'm not or skipping. Do, yeah, yeah. I don't or... even know how. My record player is very simply there's an on and an off, and that's the whole thing. So you're listening to the entire record unless you're just stopping. And so maybe I'm endorsing the idea of like listening to an entire album and not letting your ADD kick in and like shuffle around to a bazillion other tracks at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then also Pure Girl by Harry Belafonte. Every single track is, is great and will pull you out of the doldrums. Would you say every track is, <laughs> is pure, pure gold? Right? It's true. I hear Fiona Apple's new album, Everyone is Dying For Too. Yeah, people love it. Well, yeah. if you want to find out more about Lawson, I'm assuming Barnstorm VFX, and mm-hmm. you also have your own Instagram handle, correct? I do. It's uh, Fine Art Films. Where can listeners learn more about you, Lawson? Uh, you can go to barnstormvfx.com. B-A-R-N-S-T-O-R-M-V-F-X.com. You can find our reel on Vimeo. You can find it on our webpage. And yeah, definitely the website is a good place to start, uh, especially if you're interested in the industry and may want to get a job as a visual effects artist. Or if you need to hire an awesome company. That is true. And you have a ton of money. (laughs) A ton of money definitely is a plus, but we will not ignore you. If you don't have money, but just be upfront about it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, cool. if you want to find out more about what we talked about in this episode, you can go to justshootitpod.com where we have all the show notes. You can follow the podcast across all social media at justshootitpod. I'm on Instagram and I've been tweeting a lot too lately with a lot of VFX people, actually. I'm at OKaplan at both places. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams. And you're listening to The Artist Jazar, provided by the Free Music Archive. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.